Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This is my last podcast of 2020, and what a year it's been. Above all, it's been the story of COVID-19, but also of the most extraordinary US election I've ever seen. And it's also been a year when relations between China and the West hit a new low. To look back at 2020 and forward to 2021, I'm joined by the FT's editor, Ruda Khalaf, and by Martin Wolf, our chief economics commentator. So, with a vaccine on the way and Donald Trump on his way out of the White House, can the world get back to normal in 2021? I can vividly remember when I first became aware of COVID-19. I was standing in the FT office in Hong Kong in January, and I heard a desk editor talking to one of our correspondents in China about the outbreak of a mysterious new disease in the city of Wuhan. The Chinese authorities were saying the situation was under control. The FT editors in Hong Kong were sceptical, and how right they were. But it was not until a couple of months later, when I opened the paper and read about a major COVID outbreak in Italy, that it became clear that we were facing a global pandemic. The other big story of the year was the US election. And here the question was not just who would win, but whether Donald Trump would accept defeat. In fact, the US president is still claiming that the election has been stolen. But the results have now been certified. Senior Republicans have finally accepted that Joe Biden won. And it now seems that democracy will indeed survive in the United States. But isn't it extraordinary that I even have to say that? Other big stories of 2020 that we'll discuss in the next half hour include advances for peace in the Middle East, some unexpected successes for the European Union, and the story that never seems to go away, Brexit. But we start, inevitably, with COVID-19. For everybody in the world, this has been a personal as well as a political story. So I started by asking Rula Halaf what it was like taking over as editor-in-chief of the FT and then, within weeks, being hit by a pandemic. How can I put it? Uh, It's been extraordinary, but at the same time, unbelievably challenging because we went from one day to the next to publishing online and in print without any of us being in the office. And we didn't know that we could do this. We just had no idea. Luckily, it was very smooth. And I think that for the first sort of few months, there was a novelty in it. The challenge is what was driving us. And I think everyone put in 100% effort. And you could see it. You could see it in the copy of the columnists like you and Martin. This was such an extraordinary story uh, and such an unusual time. And probably the biggest crisis that, you know, we've seen in our lifetimes. And, you know, I grew up during a civil war, so I probably had a bit more experience of big crises than most. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, broadening out the perspective, businesses and people generally are saying, okay, are we going to go back to normal at some point? Or has life changed? You know, we're just going to do everything differently or a little bit differently. Obviously, each business is different, but from the perspective of running the FT, do you think at some point we're all vaccinated, we just go back to the way it was? Or has everything shifted a bit? I don't think we go back completely to the way it was. I think most journalists this year have experienced a different way of working. They've experienced, in many cases, a better work-life balance. And I think they will want to keep some of that. 
what I expect is that we'll have some form of hybrid work. So people have got to come back to the office once there's a vaccine and once they feel safe about taking public transport, because I think that's what's blocking them right now. But at the same time, you have to ask the question, do they have to be in the office every day? Yeah. So Martin, looking a bit more sort of globally, it strikes me in a way you could describe the, uh, if we're lucky, as having a kind of arc. So COVID breaks out in China in January. By December, people are beginning to be vaccinated. 2020 is the year of the pandemic. But if one can assume that the vaccines begin to work uh, in the first half of next year, do you think for the global economy, it's back to normal? I mean, might we even have a big post-COVID boom? I think we must be going through the worst. And the worst part of the recession was probably the second quarter, actually, of this year. But it's going to be a very spotty recovery. First of all, there are quite important parts of the world where the vaccines clearly aren't going to be rolled out very quickly, if at all, this coming year. It'll be mainly the developed countries that get them, obviously a very large part of the world economy, but far from all of it. And the freedom to travel depends very much on either countries accepting vaccination, I think that will be the most important thing as enough, or a very efficient testing regime. I doubt whether that will be fully back either. So my guess is we are going generally to have a pretty good recovery next year as things slowly return to normal. We won't recoup the recession of this year next year. So we'll end up globally pretty considerably still below 2019 end of year. And the recovery will continue through to 2022 by when, towards the end, we should be back to where we started. But we will still be well below where we would have been if things had continued as normal. And there will be a lot of scars. I think it's just unavoidable. Some parts of our economies, some people in our economies, a lot of people in our economies, a lot of economies, countries, have been really, really badly hit. And this is not going to come back very, very quickly. We think we have to be realistic about this. This is the biggest shock economically, politically, socially we've experienced since the Second World War. I think the idea that it will be all be over in a year is very optimistic. But final thought, yes, some people, people with money, people who've saved a lot of money, people who are able to travel, are probably going to party. Well, there's still quite a lot of trouble, a bit like the 20s. <laughs> so, Rula, I mean, Martin says it's not just an economic event. Obviously, it's also a geopolitical event, early days. But do you have a sense of how world politics will have been changed by this pandemic? So, I tend to think of next year as a year of transition. We assume that a lot of people will be vaccinated by the middle of next year, but you know, we don't know yet because there will be problems in the supply chain and the distribution of the vaccine. So I think that next year will be a transition to a more normal world. The other big event that we've had this year is, of course, the election of Joe Biden. And geopolitically, this is what will also start to make a difference. But again, a new administration that comes in in January with the pandemic ravaging through American cities, I think the first priority of the American administration is going to be very much domestic. Yes, there is already relief in many parts of the world, not least in Europe, about the return of a more traditional foreign policy in the U.S. And clearly the Europeans are trying as hard as possible 
to bring the Biden administration into an alliance that will have many different aspects, not least in order to confront China better. But I do think that the Biden administration, while renewing alliances and sending signals, will be extremely occupied by the pandemic, possibly even longer than Europe. Mm. So Martin, when I asked you about COVID, I mean, I suppose in a way I was asking you, is it over yet? Can we relax? One could almost ask the same question about Donald Trump. I mean, you've been very concerned about the whole future of the United States, of democracy. He's gone. He's been defeated. Can we say, okay, we can breathe out. That was a weird aberration, back to normal. What are the lasting lessons of what happened? Well, of course, technically he isn't gone yet, but we now assume that he will go. But I do think it will be very optimistic, whatever I hope, to assume that Trumpism or even Trump has gone. You have to reckon that, in fact, the Republicans did really pretty well in this election. Trump himself was defeated, but they are in a very powerful position in Congress. We don't know yet the outcome in the Senate. They might still hold it. Trump has established beyond doubt that he continues to have enormous power in the Republican Party, not least because so many Republican voters love him. And he has managed to get a quite extraordinary number of people in the Republican Party, including very senior officials, behind his ludicrous campaign to get the election overturned. Fortunately and impressively, the judicial institutions and some very important state officials have held strong. But this spectacle that we've seen since the election is really quite astonishing. So I don't think that the temper of the party, or even some of the most senior people in the party, including himself, will just go away. And it's very clear that a very significant proportion of Republicans, voters, and possibly even people more senior than voters, think that Biden's victory is illegitimate. So my assumption is at the moment that unless something changes, Mr. Biden will be opposed by a very problematic opposition, fiercely determined to prevent it from achieving anything, and that the Republicans will continue to be very, very difficult. And I'm not at all sure that Mr. Trump won't remain around, possibly even be the candidate in the next election. And if not him, it could be someone just like him. Yeah. And and Rula, I mean, it strikes me if you're looking for things that Trump, unusual president as he is, have changed possibly in an almost bipartisan way, it's on China, where there's been a big shift towards a much more suspicious attitude towards China. And even in this year, I think you could argue that this was a year of increasing estrangement between China and the West. Pandemic, what happened on the Indian border, the treatment of Australia, Hong Kong, of course. Looking ahead, though, at the US-China-the-West relationship, is it something that can be repaired or have we just in a totally new phase? More in style than substance, I think. If you look at the US establishment, the political establishment, I don't think that anyone disagrees fundamentally with Trump's confrontation of China. It's the method that I think will be different under Biden. I think what Biden will do is try to find also ways of engagement. So where could there be common ground? Climate for example. So have a relationship with China that is not totally dominated by trade. 
but include in it ways of engaging with the Chinese in addition to confronting the Chinese. But I don't think that this brings an end or a reversal to the decoupling that we've seen. In fact, I think that Europe is also hardening on China. And in some ways, and I think some people in China do think that now, Biden in the longer term could be more dangerous than Trump. Because if you have a very strong U.S.-European alliance, more agreement on standards, whether it's on tech regulation or climate, for example, then that is a much more powerful counterforce to China. Some Chinese are worried that Biden could end up being worse than Trump. I wanted to say something also about Trumpism, because I think our focus needs to be next year and in the coming months on the base, on the voters, right, rather than on Trump. He's managed to just capture our attention for the past four years. And we really have been extremely focused on him and his persona. But what Biden and the Democrats now have to manage is the Trump voter and the Trump voter who is now convinced that this election was stolen. So I agree with a lot of what Martin says. but. I'm not sure about Trumpism as such, because a movement to continue to survive needs an organization. It needs to be a real movement. And I'm not sure that Trump really has a movement. I think what Trump has is an idea, a way of firing up and you know, manipulating, mostly manipulating people. But once Trump is gone, he has absolutely nothing to give his voter base. So the big question for me is who captures it? who is the next Trump rather than what happens to Trump. And he may very well be prosecuted. He may run again. Or, you know, what I hear more is that Trump Jr. will run or Ivanka. But I don't see that they actually have an organization. They have Rudy Giuliani. So where is the Trump organization? Because for a political movement to survive, you need that organization, the grassroots organization. And What he's done is use the Republican organization. But once he's out of office and he has nothing to offer people, I'm not sure how relevant he will be able to continue to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And yet, as uh, Martin, as we were saying, he has affected this change in policy towards China. I'm interested, how do you feel about this sense that the West is now embracing a more confrontational approach with China I know in some ways you're an admirer of, of the, the Chinese government and the way it's reduced poverty and so on. You're also, you know, a staunch liberal. What do you think about the direction we're heading? Well, I suppose, like most people, one's views evolve. I think two things have happened which have become very obvious in the last maybe three or four years, but particularly in the last year or two. The first is that under Xi Jinping, China has evolved into very much a robust great power challenging Western ideas and Western influence in many different ways. I don't even know how conscious this was in the sense that that's the way they want to position themselves in the world, but it's clearly what they've been doing. And there are some very obvious indicators of that on the human rights side, which will matter a lot to Biden supporters more than to Trump, but Hong Kong, Xinjiang, the Uyghurs. That's obviously important. You've already mentioned their very clear and provocative interventions in countries like Australia and indeed in our own. So it's becoming much more difficult to deal with China. I think that's obvious. And it's also clear that in our countries, 
there are genuine issues of uh, security, technological independence, and therefore how we manage the relationship. So I think we couldn't, and this here I very much agree with what Ruda said, we cannot go back. There's no chance of going back to the status quo ante. However, the question is, what is the model for relationships? It can't really be the relationship we have with the Soviet Union. First of all, China is a much greater power if you leave aside nuclear weapons, and partly because we didn't have any economic relations with the Soviet Union, to all intents and purposes. We were two independent spheres. China is a giant economic power, a giant trading power, the biggest single one in the world. We have colossal interaction with them economically, which I think is desirable because it gives us mutual interests. We share interests in maintaining peace and security in some way, and of course, in managing the climate and the economic system. So somehow or other, we're going to have to do something really, really clever, for which I think there are no precedents, which is be able to manage the relationship with a a great power, which is in many ways a rival, but is also one with which we are inextricably interlinked. That's Biden and Europe's challenge, and we're going to see how well it goes. The reason I didn't want to get here at all is because it frightens me, because I think that such a relationship can collapse into catastrophe, and that's not where anyone sensible would want to go. Indeed. Rula, let me turn to another development, which I think in a normal year would have got a lot of attention, which is this change in the geopolitics of the Middle East right at the end of the year, where suddenly... Israel has diplomatic relations with important Gulf states, potentially eventually with Saudi Arabia. How significant is this and what's going on? Very significant. This is what Israel has sought to do for decades. I think what's going on is Donald Trump. I think that the Trump administration has facilitated these relationships. And I think that many countries in the Arab world have wanted to to almost give, I mean, they've had a very strange relationship with the Trump administration, but they've wanted to give something to Trump. The background to all of this is, of course, Iran. And what you've seen in the last few weeks is an attempt to accomplish and, and, and strike all these peace deals before the Biden administration comes in. Because there is a fear that what the Biden administration will do is pick up where the Obama administration left off. You have to remember that during the Obama years, the relationship between the U.S. and the Arab world, well, and it's particularly the Gulf, was far more strained than it appeared. And there was a feeling amongst Gulf states that Obama had essentially sold them out because he was so interested in a nuclear agreement with Iran. I think the big question going forward is to what extent will the Biden administration be able to go back into the Iran nuclear deal because you can't just turn back the clock. A lot has happened since then and Iran will have to go back on a lot of activities that it had restarted in the last couple of years. But I think with the new administration coming in, the Arabs and the Israelis feel more secure that they're in an alliance. This alliance has been, I'd say, in the works for at least a decade, but everything was, you know, behind the scenes, very quiet. No one would ever admit to it. Now it's out in the open and it is largely driven, if not only driven really, by what they view as common interests and a common enemy, and that is Iran. 
And how do you think the Biden administration will think about this? Because on the one hand, if they take the traditional Obama approach, they would want to revive the Iran nuclear deal. And they've also always emphasized a two-state solution with the Palestinians, which is now what, you know, the Palestinians are left high and dry. On the other hand, presumably, it's a peace deal. Uh, they're pro-Israel. No, they can't be against peace deal. Yeah. So, so presumably they'll just have to take this and, and accept there's a new world now. Yeah, I don't think that the Biden administration will see any issue with Arab states and Israel being at peace. I think they would welcome that. What they will try to do is try to work through the Arab states to possibly revive the two-state solution, which is dead. It's not going to be revived, but they will try and they will see that as an advantage. But I think that the next phase, just like the last phase, will be dominated by Iran and Israel and the Arabs versus Iran and whatever the Biden administration is able to do to bring Iran back into the fold. Okay, uh, last couple of issues. We talk about Europe and then uh, about where we're sitting, about Britain. But Martin, I mean, it strikes me that actually if any part of the world had a reasonably an unexpectedly good year, you could argue, was the European Union. You know, they start being hit by COVID. It has a bad geopolitical effect. But then, unexpectedly, Germany turns around, puts its weight behind the recovery fund, this issuance of common debt, which uh, is potentially a, a really significant change. Plus, they hold it together over Brexit. The EU's not had a bad year, I think. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, the bad news is COVID It really has been a disaster for Europe in terms of death rates, um, some of the highest in the world, economic effects. And this includes Britain, of course. So it's not very impressive. And that fits in with something very important, which is generally the West hasn't been very impressive in dealing with COVID. And the world has noticed. And the East Asians, including the Chinese, have done so much better. So that's been very bad. But I agree with you completely. We have been reminded of something that sort of has been in the back of my mind and I occasionally every so often come back to, which is that for the core Europeans, Germany is, of course, the most important part, but also the French, when push comes to shove, they regard maintaining and strengthening the EU as so vital an interest. The alternative of the opposite is so unthinkable that they will do, to coin a famous phrase, whatever it takes, when they have to. And that has been shown this year, just as it was shown in crucial times during the Eurozone crisis. But this time they've done it more quickly and more effectively. I think they still have a big problem with Britain and they certainly have a big problem with Hungary and Poland. But the core thing, Germany has said, we cannot repeat the austerity story. We cannot repeat all that mess Yes, ECB, do whatever you like. The ECB has jumped five years of policymaking in, in a month this time. Incredible at what they're doing. Just like the Fed, they're like the Fed. And, of course, the recovery package. So I think they have told us that they are really, really serious about making it work and survive. And that's a very important because I agree with them. The one area that's going to be very difficult for them is actually dealing with the illiberal democracies. And we've seen this play out over the last few weeks with the threat of veto by Hungary and Poland. But I think that's going to be the big challenge next year. Yeah, and I think the thing I'm still trying to figure out, and we had an interesting piece by our colleague Ben Hall, is have they dealt with it? You know, they've got the Hungarians and Poles to sign up to something, but will it have any teeth? Do you have a, a feeling for that? 
many would argue that what they've done is just paper over the problem now, but it is a much longer term problem for them. And Angela Merkel and the commission have tried very hard not to confront this problem, not to take it head on. I mean, I'm, And at some point they're going to have to. Yeah, although I must say, I think one thing that's broken their way is that Trump is no longer in the White House. I think that they, they were very concerned. I remember when I was in Berlin in August that Trump would make common cause with the Hungarians and Poles. And as one of the German officials put it to me, he might be able to take apart the EU faster than we can build it. And now they have Biden, who will not make common cause with Hungarians and Poles. And the, the picture looks a little bit different. Not that it's solved, but it's it's a bit easier. That's in a way acute to their other problem, which is us, uh, the UK. We're speaking, you know... Uh, just as these final negotiations are coming. How many? Final, final, final. I don't know how many times we can leave the same organization. We seem to do Brexit every year. But uh, (laughs) but anyway, um, let's say a deal is done, which I think is the most likely. Where is Britain left as an international player once we're outside the European Union? Do you, I mean, you were in Downing Street this morning, I think, Rudolf, that's not giving away a secret. Uh, Do you have a sense that they yet have a picture of what Britain's going to be uh, in the years to come? I think they have ambition. I think they see a sort of return to a a kind of glorious past with Britain playing an important role in the world. But I think that, as you say, we're still getting to Brexit. And I think once the reality of Brexit hits, and that won't be before next year, that's when they really have to start thinking about the practicalities of Brexit, the difficulties of Brexit, not least domestically. Again, I think that the whole focus is going to be, as it has been because of the negotiations, it's going to be very domestic because the combination of Brexit and COVID has such a massive cost to the economy. And I don't think that they have yet understood the extent of the problems that they will be facing next year. The one area where I think there is definitely an ambition and also a chance that we will be leaders is on climate, for example. And we've got the COP26 coming up next year. And one thing somebody told me this morning was in a normal year, you would think that just having COP would be the biggest item on your agenda for the year. So I think there are areas where they will try to show leadership. But mostly, I think that they will discover next year the reality of Brexit and the reality of, you know, the repercussions of of Brexit. Yeah, I mean, Martin, I would like to believe as a citizen of this country that, although I think we all all agree uh, that Brexit probably was a mistake, that Britain can come back from this, find a new role for itself, be, um, you know, important middle power in the world and a fairly stable place. I suspect you're not as optimistic. Am I right? You suspect right. I've written about this recently. Beyond the challenges which Rulo's mentioned, I'll just mention one internal and one external. I do think that we don't know how it will play out. The, The devolution into independence issue for Scotland is inescapably going to confront the UK. I think for Scotland... It creates a problem. Separating from the UK within the EU is very different from separating from the UK when the rest of the UK, which is, of course, its most important trading partner, is outside. But I think the political dynamic of feeling we really don't want to be shackled to an England ruled by 
incompetent buffoons, which is what they feel. And some of us share this view. They don't want this. So that's going to be a big issue internally. They have no, I think, no workable economic model yet. And they never did. I mean, the government won an election without an economic program. And of course, there's COVID. So they have huge problems. Then there's the external side. You mentioned that the disappearance of Mr. Trump is a very big issue for Hungary and Poland. Well, I certainly wouldn't put Britain in the same category. You know, we are a democracy still. But it's pretty clear that Mr. Biden is a very different kettle of fish from the British point of view from Mr. Trump. Mr. Biden admires the EU and wants to preserve it. He will regard the EU as overwhelmingly his country's most important interlocutor in Europe. He will regard us as much less important since we don't have a role in that. He is emotionally deeply attached to Ireland and uh, he has no instinctive respect for or attachment to Mr. Johnson. And so to be for Britain outside the EU with a US which is somewhere between indifferent to hostile, I mean, it's clearly not supportive. In this world where, quite contrary to what we thought five years ago, China is not a friend either in any way, it's going to be really, really hard, combined with, of course, the enormous economic damage. We've had the worst experience economically of any significant G7 country. So we need a reinvention of Britain economically, politically, socially, and I regret to say I don't see that on the horizon. This is going to be an incredibly challenging period for this country, without a doubt. Okay, well, thanks, Martin. The reinvention of Britain, that can be our project for next year. But uh, thanks so much for helping me bring this year to a close with a really fascinating discussion. Thank you, Ruler. Thank you, Martin. Goodbye for now. That was Martin Wolf and Ruler Khalaf ending this edition of the Rachman Review and bringing the curtain down on the show for 2020. Thanks for listening to this podcast and perhaps to some of our other discussions over the course of the year. I hope you'll be able to join me again in 2021. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.